Welcome to the Or Halev podcast with Rabbi James Jacobson Mazels. So we've been talking uh, the last few weeks about the Kaddish, and I think we're going to finish that tonight, talking about Kaddish. And what we've explored so far is the way in which Kaddish is a practice of expansiveness, of enlarging around everything we've experienced and encountered, which asks us to sanctify, to get greater, to get bigger. Last time we talked about the way in which Kaddish talks about and acknowledges its own movement beyond language. Its own right? Beyond all praise and blessing and song and consolation. And that when we do that, it can liberate the mind. So we talked last time about the way it liberates the mind from prejudice and preconception. We start to see things just the way they are. Right? without all the filters, without all the prejudgments, without all the history that we bring normally to our experience of the world. And that when we do that, we start to be able to see the truth. Right? We start to be able to see things clearly. And it's incredibly hard to do that, but it's incredibly liberating because it allows us to see things just the way they are. So the way we pretend they are, say the way we want them to be. And that seeing is also connected to that sense of expansiveness, to that sense of confidence, generosity in our own true nature. In the class that I taught just before this one, we were looking at a text of the possessors, and he talks about how he calls on the people he's, he's talking to to see themselves not as somebody who is lowly or a failure or somebody who's messed up, but rather somebody who is a Yisrael, a Hasid, an Oved Hashem, right? Who is pious, a servant of God, a Jew, to see our own genuine extraordinariness, our own magnificence. And he says that when we do that, we actually can deeply see at those times our chesronot, shalanu, right? Our lacks, our failures, our difficulties. Because when we can see our expansiveness, our tremendousness, right? When we can see our basic beauty and stability and safety, then we can also see our failings. So then our failings aren't so threatening, right? Then our failings don't say something about the nature of who we are. Then our failings aren't about to overwhelm us. They're not about to eat us alive. Right? I don't become my failings. I see them as an aspect of what I am. And in that way, as I talked about briefly last time, Kaddish is a practice of reminding us as mourners of the truth over and over again. The truth is of loss. The truth is of pain. The truth is of sorrow. It's the truth, right? And it's one of the characteristics of a sage, right? He's model al-alaymet. He acknowledges the truth, right? Because what it is to be wise is to fully see that truth. To fully see that truth. But in Hasidic terminology, that seeing of the truth goes beyond the kind of limited truth of this moment. In a certain sense, the same way that our acknowledging things just as they are goes beyond the limited conceptual framework we have around it, the labeling, the way we create narrative that puts it back into the context of other experiences we've had, and takes us to a place where we see a different kind of truth, at least according to the Baal Shem Tov and his descendants, which is the truth of the divinity of everything we encounter. Right? We say in the Elenu prayer and from the Masuk, of course, in Od, right? Right? There's no other. There's no other God. 
And classically, Shnuzam Leviadi, the Alter Rebbe, the first Rebbe of Chabad, and many other Hasidic masters read it as there is no other. It's not there's no other God. There's nothing else. Right? There is no Ein Od. Pichlav. Ein Od. That's it. There's nothing but God. There's nothing but God. That's the totality of our experience. And in sort of the next sense, this is what it means to see the truth. This is what it means to see that the world is, as we say in the Kaddish, right? According to the divine will. Kirute. Right? According to his will. It means to see that it's all divine will, that it's all divinity. And in a certain sense, I'd say this is the culmination of the expansiveness of the Kaddish. If the Kaddish is about expanding wider and wider and wider and wider and wider until we can contain everything, at a certain point we're so wide, there's nothing to contain, right? It's just divinity. We're divinity, we're trying to hold in divinity, the container is divinity, right? What the Fizetner says about the Baal Shem Tov, he says, before we had this idea that, you know, you drew down divine light into things, and there could be divine light in us, and there could be divine light in things in the world, and that was beautiful, and the Kabbalistic Master showed us, but what the Baal Shem Tov showed us is that even the thing you're drawing it down into, the Kli, is nothing but divine light. Right? Even the thing you think you're filling with the divine light, nothing but divine light in its origins. It's just divine. It's just God all the way through, all the way through, all the way through. And there's a, a certain kind of joyfulness, I think, in that vision. Even if that vision is just for a moment, right? It's a vision maybe you have in times of intense practice or have when your heart is just open for a moment. Whatever the situation is happening in your life, your heart is open and all of a sudden, ah, right, it's all God, right? (laughs) Or it's all all right or it's all good in some sense. Which doesn't mean that it's all good in some sort of Pollyannish sense. It's not all good, right? There's plenty of suffering out there. There's plenty of difficulty. None of that makes it go away or it doesn't go away. But it's about seeing that it's all held in something wider in something that's much, 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 much greater. And in that much greater, there's a kind of basic all-rightness. There's a basic all-rightness of being with it. And, and there's even a kind of pleasure and joy in that. Right? The Chazidim talk a lot about simcha. I think that ultimately in many ways that simcha is the simcha of just containing all that is and knowing that it all can be contained. They talk, again, the Alter Rebbe says, what is simcha? He says, don't think that simcha, simcha is, is opposed, he says, to atzimut, which you can see clearly from the context, I'm talking about is what he just describes as tim tum halev, the deadening of the heart, the dulling of the heart, right? It's not opposed to shvirat halev, to brokenheartedness, to sorrow, to crying, to weeping. It's not opposed to that, right? In fact, that's part of what simcha is. Because simcha is really that container which holds everything that's true, which is wider, which is more expansive, which holds it all, and says there's something fundamentally all right. There's something fundamentally all right, even in the brokenheartedness, even in the difficulty. And, and that too, I think, is part of the process of the Kaddish and part of the process of mourning, right? Part of what the Kaddish tries to lead us toward, and, and the process of mourning leads us towards, is this ability to hold our loss in something wider, right? Which doesn't mean that our hearts are not still broken, right? That's just shutting down, right? Like, the hearts are broken. And probably in some ways, depending on the loss and how the loss goes, you know, it's different for different things, but for some losses, our hearts will be broken for the rest of our lives, right? It's like, you know, I just lost my mom this year, and I don't know how that'll feel like years from now, but 10 years ago, I lost my sister, and my heart's still broken about that. Like, it's never not going to be broken about that, right? But it's different, 
right? I'm not lost in it and lost in running away from it and not, you know, in the way I was in the first year or the first two years, right? Because there's a sense of expansiveness and even a sense now I would say loss and brokenheartedness, but also deep appreciation. It's like how blessed I was to have her in my life for the 30 years I got to have her, you know? Great loss, they didn't get to have her for a lot longer, but how blessed I was, how lucky I was to have her, right? And, and seeing each of those sides is not denying the other, right? And it's not pretending pain isn't there where pain is there, but it is seeing there's something broader, that this is holdable, and there's, there's still appreciation and gratitude. In the midst of that loss, in the midst of that difficulty, in the midst of whatever's happened, there's still appreciation and gratitude there. They're still seeing for a moment that it's divine. I was just reading uh, yesterday a uh, book, famous book by William James, called The Varieties of Religious Experience. Some of you may have read it. If not, it's a great book. You can read it. It's a classic. <laughs> so I was reading parts of it. And he talks about um, different ways in which we can meet and accept the truth of this world. He says, I think they're important because I want to sort of be clear about this expansiveness. There's a way he said we can meet this world and accept it in a certain way, which is resignation. And that's not really acceptance. That's kind of giving up, right? That's like, oh, well, that's the way it is. I give up. (laughs) Put in my hands. I surrender. That's it. Like, I can't do anything about it anyway. I give up. There's another way we can meet it which is about just really acknowledging this is what is. This is what is. This is what is. This is the sort of telling truth we've been talking about. Right? And it's, it's very powerful. And it's very healing. And it can hold the fullness. And it can be this is what is and now I'm going to work to do whatever needs to be done. Right? It's not paralyzing. It's not resignation. And then he says there, but there's a, there's a further level. He talks about the saints. Right? Because <laughs> those who are in love with God. <laughs> which is... This is divine love in some way. Right? It's not just what is. This is also a gift. Or this is also this divinity and divine love which I'm blessed in some way to have even with all the suffering and even with all the difficulty. And maybe we often can't touch that, right? But just reading them there, I was like, oh, right. It's, that diff- it's that, just that a little bit more of a shift which says, not only are you there, not only is this what is, but come in and have a hug, you know? <laughs> Like, let me embrace what is right now, and let me really be, and let me celebrate it in a certain way. Which isn't about ignoring the parts which are difficult, but it's about really opening in this full expanse of the same, in some way, this is too his divine will, and, and I appreciate it in some way. Right? I take it in. And so we just get wider and wider. It's like the ultimate, it's the ultimate end of the wideness, which is that it's so wide, it can encompass anything. Right? Nothing's excluded anymore. And what's amazing about that is that, you know, and this is sort of the Kabbalistic language which describes it in our traditional language, which is when there's nothing excluded, then all of a sudden what happens? Nothing's in exile anymore. Right? All the parts of ourself which are in exile, whatever's in exile, right? We all have those parts of ourself which we can't fully touch or accept or be with or see because they're too scary or dangerous or hurtful or overwhelming, whatever they are. But when we're wide enough, nothing's in exile. Right? It's all Shivat Sion, right? <laughs> Everything's coming back, right? Everything can come back. Because there's space for all of it. There's space for all of it. And that is profoundly healing. Right? When we're not pushing anything away, when there's moments when there's space for everything, 
the heart is open and there's a lightness and there's a delight to life. Right? There's a delight to life. Because there's delight. This is part of, again, notice in your practices, there's a delight to not excluding anything. Even in the midst of pain, even when there's pain there, there is still delight and pleasure just in the not excluding. It's like there's delight in mindfulness. You might have noticed that. When you're mindful, mindfulness itself is actually pleasurable. Even if you're mindful of something painful, and that thing may still be painful, right? But the mindfulness itself is pleasurable. There's something actually pleasurable about just being in direct contact with what is. Right? Just being there. And it's the same way, there's something pleasurable about those walls breaking down, right? It feels liberating. I feel open. I feel like I've returned. I feel like, thank God, oh, I'm back. I'm here. I'm awake. But the challenge, of course, well, not the challenge, one of the challenges, there are many challenges, one of the challenges of, of Minyan in this, of the Kaddish in this respect, is that, of course, we only say it in our tradition in a Minyan, right, in a quorum, in a community. And we say these words and we expand this way or try to expand this way in the presence of others. Because in a certain sense, I think there's a lot of wisdom there, which is that if we don't acknowledge the truth and expand around it before others, if we don't expose ourselves to others, then in some way we remain hidden and closed. Right? It's like the next step. There are things that may be okay, maybe I'm willing to see to myself, but God forbid somebody else should know <laughs> that that's what's happening in my mind. Right? So the solitary work is crucial, but I think there's a kind of exposure which is the next level of challenge. It's a challenge embodied in the Kaddish. It's allowing ourselves to be seen in our pain, and our confusion, and our loss, which can be profoundly healing. And I think I'll suggest you all know that from your own experience in some ways, just a time when you've shared something which feels shameful, or unbecoming, or challenging with somebody else, and they just held you in it. And it was okay, right? It was okay. They don't like, no, you're terrible. They're like, okay. <laughs> I can hold it, I can see that, maybe with a friend, maybe with a therapist, maybe on a retreat, maybe, you know, who knows? But, like, you shared that at some point, and it was okay. And that was healing, right? Because some part of you just got exposed and accepted. Not just here, but out there, and it helped you accept it in here, and it was just a back-and-forth process, right? And I think it's particularly that aspect of shame, right? So often, the, the edges of what we're willing to accept are the edges of shame. Right? Maybe we can accept the pain, maybe we can accept the difficulty, but what we feel shameful about, what we feel embarrassed about in some way, what feels unbecoming to us, that's outside the circle. Right? That's too much to bring in. Avram Kalisker is a third generation Hasidic Rebbe who made Aliyah to Israel. Um, teaches this practice of co-counseling, of uh, having people talk with and work with each other. And he says in one of his texts about it, really insightfully, he says, how do you do this? He says, when you, when you, what you should do is you should sit with each other and you should talk about basically like what's not working, you know, <laughs> where you're messing up, where you're failing, what's difficult in your life right now. And you should think about how you can improve it and your friend can help you think about how you can improve it. And, and you'll do that with each other all the time. And he says, when you do this, when you've accustomed yourself to doing this, it will be that when a person will see in a friend something wrong or objectionable and reprove him, he will not feel ashamed before the other and will confess the truth. Thus falsehood would fall, and truth will begin to shine. And there's something really insightful there. It's like, right, if we can continually share those pieces of ourselves with another, and they can share with us, then when somebody notes something about us, we don't have to feel defensive, because there's no shame. It's like, oh, oh, 
oh, I did that? Oops, right? <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't do that, right? <laughs> Maybe I should figure out how to do something else. Without the whole story, without the defensiveness, without the right, the, the holding back, without the right, because that's all coming from the sense of shame, the sense of self-protection. I was talking earlier today with somebody else about uh, there's a guy John Gottman who does a lot of research about marriage. So he's the only person who's done like serious, serious empirical research about marriage and relationship, right? And he talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse <laughs> in terms of relationships and marriage. What are the four things that destroy relationships? Um, they're criticism, right? Which is criticism of the person, right? Which is not a telling the person a complaint or something you want to change, but like, you know, you're terrible in some way. There's contempt, right? There's defensiveness, and there's stonewalling, right? So there's basically the things which produce shame <laughs> and the things which protect yourself from feeling attacked or shamed, right? And not being willing to admit or see those things. And so when we expand, we're trying to get so broad that we're not protecting ourselves from the shame anymore. We're not protecting ourselves from the criticism. We're not protecting ourselves even from the contempt, right? Because there's nothing to protect because we're totally open, we're totally expansive. And then falsehood will fall and truth will begin to shine. Right. And it's it's um it's tremendously healing. And again, I'm just gonna suggest you know that already, right? <laughs> you know, especially those shameful places when you've found maybe with a intimate partner, maybe with a close friend, when you've been brave enough to share the places where you feel like I'm so nervous sharing this, I'm so nervous sharing this, I'm so nervous sharing it, but you say it anyway. Whew, how releasing that feels. How healing that is. But of course, to really do this, right, to do like Kaddish this way <laughs> is the challenge. It requires people in a community who's willing to be a kind of Ezra Konegdo in that way, to be a witness, to be a challenge, to be a loving opponent, to hold the mirror. It requires people who won't run from displays of emotion and confusion and failure and loss, who won't use shame or embarrassment to tamp down unseemly emotions, right? who rather see their task as allowing each person to fully hold and express and expand around their suffering and confusion. And that's really hard, right? And most minyanim aren't very good at doing that. <laughs> it's not its not our greatest strength, unfortunately, in the Jewish world. Um, but it's not impossible. But it's not impossible to create communities of spiritual fellows of love which really can hold the full extent of what we can feel. Can hold our tears and hold our confusion. And I want to sort of put out a suggestion around that, which is sort of a challenge and some of you have been in some of my other classes, you may have experienced this practice, and if you haven't, I'm happy to talk about it. Maybe I'll even talk about it more in depth next time. But um, to maybe find somebody who does this practice, you know, maybe somebody right here in the class with you. Doesn't have to be somebody you know well, right? And set up a kind of spiritual chavruta where you're working with. Once a week, we're going to check in and we're going to think about what's happening. How's my practice going? How's my life going? <laughs> Where are things not going in there well? Where are things going great? Right? And how can I work on that? It's a practice um, I do with a friend of mine, a fellow teacher. Uh, we're doing now weekly. And um, it's a practice where I have many students who do and have still been doing it years after they learned the practice with people around the globe. Now you can do it on Skype. You can do it with friends elsewhere. You know, There's all kinds of ways you can do it. But it's a really important part of this work, which is... You know, we do a lot of it, and we tried a little bit, and I'm going to try some more. It's hard on the time to like bring us a little bit more maybe sense of the community and the, and the fellowship and the communication. 
But um, to have that place of, of contact with another and exposure with another and communication with another around these things. You know, it can be your intimate other and it cannot be. Right? It can be many different people. So I'm, I'm putting that out there. I'm putting it out there as a suggestion, as a kind of challenge to think we're not going to meet now for the next two weeks because it's Hanukkah. So we're going to meet over Hanukkah. To think in the next two weeks, can you find somebody to do that with? You know, I'm going to make a note to myself the next time I'll talk about what that might look like and how you could do that and how you can maintain that practice and instructions around it. And we'll do another piece next time around also mindful speech. So how you can communicate in the middle of that through a way that allows us to continue to bring the mindfulness to be present. So that's my suggestion and challenge for your homework for the next three weeks. And I want to end with sort of the, the fruit of this practice, which is how Kaddish ends, right? How does Kaddish end? Always, always, except for Chatsi Kaddish? It ends with peace, right? It ends with a prayer for peace. And in some ways, I think it's a capstone. You know, it's not surprising. We end with that all the time. We end at the end of the Amidah. I mean, we're always ending with this capstone, which is the prayer for peace, which is the affirmation of peace. And we end with it because, again, I'll suggest it's just our experience. When we can expand, when we can expand around our experience, when we can hold it fully, when we can bring and face the full truth of what is, even when the truth is scary, right, and challenging, and uncertain, and shaky, and all the things that that truth can be, right? It does not have to be an easy truth, even when the truth is really challenging, but we can really see it. We can even take that next level and expose and hold that truth in front of others, right? So it's really held. So I'm not protecting myself anymore. I'm not holding back anymore. I'm not pushing down anymore. I'm not pushing anything away anymore. There's nothing more in exile. When we come back from exile, the blessing that we receive, the fruit of our practice, is the fruit of peace. It's the fruit of profound equanimity, profound being okay, just all right, right, just okay in the world, just profoundly okay in the world. And it's not a peace which is that says, you know, and now nothing's difficult. What's powerful about it is there's a peace that happens in the midst of the difficulty, right? This is hard right now, and I can just be okay with it. Right? And it can happen at any moment. I mean, I was just I was thinking about this. I was thinking, you know, I've had times in my life where nothing that terrible is happening, right? Like, things are okay, but I'm stressed about work or stressed about whatever what's happening. And all of a sudden, like, I'm, test, I'm, st- I'm tense, I'm stressed. It's really hard, right? Because for whatever reason, I'm not open and embracing and fully with that. I'm not with that, right? And then I was thinking, this fall... And it's been this fall. Um, so my mother passed away not that many months ago. We had to move houses twice. We were living in a one-bedroom apartment with two kids, right? <laughs> so we were all just living in the living room. The kids were in the bedroom. That was just how it was. We had tremendous struggles and difficulties with our gun. Uh, we are trying to build our house. Our architect left us and everything fell apart. And we had to like, start the process all over again, right? A lot of stuff happening, right? <laughs> Um, and all the normal difficulties of life and trying to make a living and all the normal things to get through. And I was fine, right? I was fine because in some way, at those moments, because I knew I needed to or whatever did, because the practice was strong enough, I could come into it with an open heart and be like, wow, this is all totally crazy. <laughs> and this is quite hard. And there's a lot of stuff happening right now. And this is not what we planned, right? <laughs> we were not supposed to go like this. We were not supposed to be in a one-bedroom apartment with our two kids, right? And it's totally fine. 
Right? It's totally fine. Like it's totally fine. We all have food, and we all have clothes, we all have a house over our head, you know what I mean? And nobody's gonna be on the street and our kids are basically fine, and if we're fine with them, they're going to be fine, even though it's hard for them, all these transitions, and the new gun, and the gun having to move buildings, and like, I don't even go, you know, you can ask me another time about that whole story, and spending two weeks of us doing sheep with seam on the new gun, right? <laughs> so like, you know, that's what we were doing all our evenings, right? So like, very, very intense time, but, you know, it was okay. And it was all about the open-heartedness with which I could come to that situation. And it could have been terrible. Could have been disastrous, right? And that would have had nothing to do with what happened in the situation, right? Could in the same situation, it could have been disastrous. Could in the same situation, it could have been completely okay. And luckily, for whatever reasons, variety of reasons, intention, practice, all kinds of things, it was okay. It was actually totally fine, right? So that's the possibility of peace. That's the possibility of vastness of the practice. Like we can just hold it all, and it's all okay. You've been listening to the Or Halev podcast with Rabbi James Jacobson Mazels. For more information about Or Halev and how to stay up to date with our podcasts, visit the website at orhalev.org.